The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he re revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, We'll go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so was the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, Lord, my strength, my redeemer. Amen. Today we continue our journey through Luke's account of the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit sends the church to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God from Jerusalem and Judea into Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. As we look at this pilgrimage of the Holy Spirit, this wilderness journey, we also observe the clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. Last week we saw this clash manifest in Jerusalem as the temple officials tried to silence the apostles. And Peter stands before the council and proclaims, we must obey God rather than men. The clash continues as Stephen is martyred and the persecution of the church propels the gospel outward from Jerusalem and into Samaria and Ethiopia through the ministry of Philip. So we come to our reading today as Saul, the zealous persecutor of the church, seeks to expand the persecution beyond the bounds of Judea and Samaria and into Syria. So let's pause for a moment to look at geography. For Luke, geography is always a part of the story. Geography is even a character in the story, whether it's the wilderness or the city, whether it's the road or the house. The geography plays a role in Luke's accounts. 
geographies even a part of the clash of kingdoms. Luke subtly challenges the dominant geography that placed Rome as the center of the civilized world. We've all heard the phrase, all roads lead to Rome. Instead, Luke places Jerusalem at the center of the earth. And we find as the church moves out from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, his account concludes in Rome. He places Rome as the ends of the earth rather than the center of the earth. Perhaps we should let the Spirit challenge our geography as well. One of the great gifts that I find in being a, di a, a parish in a, the missionary diocese of the church of Nigeria is the way that it challenges my own tendency to think of the United States as the center of everything. It's always interesting to see how Nigeria views us as a nation in dire need of missionaries. We also see a challenge to the geography of worship. Where is God located? Is the temple the only place of encounter? And then only once a year by only one man. This is the understanding that Saul and the high priest are trying to defend as they persecute the church. But Luke tells us Saul encounters Christ on the road, in the wilderness, in the journey in between. Saul encounters Christ away from the rituals and ceremonies and rites of the temple. And then we see both Saul and Ananias encountering Christ in prayer in their own homes. And this may seem obvious to us. This is revolutionary to both the Jew and the Greek at the time. See, the early Christians were called atheists, those without God, because they didn't worship in the temples. They were called a philosophy rather than a religion for the same reason. They were a way of thinking, not a way of cultic practice. I wonder how our own geography of worship should be challenged as well. conclude our discussion on geography as we briefly look at Luke's mention of the city of Damascus. If we look back on the histories in the books of Kings and Chronicles, we find Syria as the foil. Sometimes enemy, sometimes ally, sometimes occupier, sometimes client, servant. The relationship between Judah and Israel, the divided kingdoms, revolves around this relationship also with Syria. And ultimately, King Ahaz of Judah submits the kingdom of Judah as a client kingdom to Tiglath-Pileser, the Assyrian king, in return for Assyria invading and destroying Damascus. So when Ahaz travels to Damascus to meet with Tiglath-Pileser. He sends back to the priest in Jerusalem a plan to copy the altar that is in Damascus and put it in the place of the altar to the Lord. 
Ahaz has said, if, if Syria can beat us in battle, their God must be stronger than my God. He never considers that he might not be following God well. Instead, he chooses to remove the altar of the Lord God and replace it with the pagan altar of the gods of Syria and Damascus. We begin to see that old conflict between the false gods of the nations around Israel and the Lord God brought into our look at the clash of kingdoms. And as we'll see as we look next at Saul, this conflict is not an easy one to sort out. Saul, full of religious zeal, views the conflict between the traditional theology and practice of Judaism in this new heretical movement that's corrupting the synagogues and threatening the piety of the people, Saul finds his mission and purpose in protecting the faith by rooting out and persecuting those who follow the way of Jesus of Nazareth. He'll later describe himself as a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee, according to the law, blameless. His zeal and persecution of the church is absolutely in line with his theology. Until, until he has an encounter with Christ on the road. Everything that Saul has believed about God and about himself is challenged. The clash of kingdoms has moved from the cosmic and the political to the intensely per personal. This is the clash of kingdoms that occurs within us. This isn't a clash between our beliefs and the culture around us. This is the clash between what we think we know and what is really true about God and about ourselves. Saul comes face to face with the shortcomings of his theology as Jesus appears to him and asks, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul recognizes the divinity of Christ, but not his identity as Jesus. As he replies, who are you, Lord? Then everything falls apart for Saul in the response. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. All of us have an image of God, a theology that we carry around Regardless of how well-developed and systematic our theology may be, regardless of how certain we are that we are right, our theology will always be lacking. At best, our theology will be incomplete. The Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth, will always be bigger than our mortal understanding. At worst, our theology will be destructive and antagonistic to the kingdom of God. Jesus not only challenges Saul's theology, he challenges Saul's very identity. Saul has seen himself in terms of his theological convictions and religious zeal. He's a Pharisee and a persecutor of the church, a defender of the faith. Now Jesus reveals that he is a chosen witness of the gospel Chosen to go before the Gentiles, the nations, the kings, and even the children of Israel. To be a witness of the kingdom of God in his suffering. What happens 
when our theology comes into contact with the presence of God. What happens when the various ways in which we try to find our identity in our professions, in our status, in our worthiness, or even in our unworthiness? What happens when the ways we try to form our identity come into contact with our true identity revealed in Christ as the beloved? These are intellectual questions to be reasoned through. These are questions that are only answered as God speaks to us in prayer. We find Saul, after his encounter on the road, seeking this wisdom in prayer and fasting. And at the same time, we find Ananias, deep in prayer. Luke tells us that this Ananias is a disciple living in Damascus. He's one of those that Saul is sent to root out and bring back to Jerusalem in chains. Jesus appears in a vision to Ananias. As with Saul, Jesus calls Ananias by name, Ananias. However, as a disciple, Ananias recognizes Jesus and responds, Here I am, Lord. And then Jesus sends Ananias to go to the very man who is sent to persecute him, and proclaim the healing power of the kingdom of God. This internal clash of kingdoms just got really real. The kingdoms of this world cry out for fear and retribution. But the kingdom of God is always the way of faith and reconciliation. The kingdoms of the world look at Saul and say, he chose the wrong side and got what was coming to him. The kingdom of God invites us to bring healing even to those who are against us. This is the ministry of reconciliation to which we are called and to which we are commissioned. So Ananias goes to Saul, and he proclaims Saul's true identity. Brother Saul, Brother, fellow beloved child of God in Christ Jesus. He lays his hands upon Saul, and in the name and power of Jesus, Saul is healed. He regains his sight, he receives the Holy Spirit, and he's baptized. He's healed physically, spiritually, and relationally. The kingdom of God is the way. I ask again, what happens when our theology comes into contact with the very presence of God? What happens when the various ways in which we try to find our identity come into contact with the truth of our identity in Christ as beloved? As I reflect on these questions, I find that I am less certain about it, a whole number of things. And I find that I am certain of far fewer things. As far as geography goes, I'm pretty certain that I am not the center of the world. In fact, I'm pretty certain that the kingdom of God is not confined or constrained to a physical and temporal geography, but instead that the kingdom of God 
is manifest everywhere the good news of the kingdom is proclaimed. And that everywhere the kingdom of God is proclaimed and made manifest, that that is the very center of the world. I'm also certain that this table is indeed a place of encounter, but it's not an exclusive place of encounter. It's not the only place that we encounter the love of God. We encounter Christ as we come to this table, and we encounter Christ as we go into the world to do the works that he has prepared for us to do, to love and serve as faithful witnesses. While I'm less certain exactly what those works are, I am certain that those works faithfully accomplished will always bring healing and reconciliation rather than fear and division. And as far as theology goes, I am even less certain about most of those things that people write books about. But I am certain of a few things. I'm certain that God redeems and restores, even when I can't immediately see it. I am certain that in Christ we are freed from bondage to sin and death. And those sins by which we have bound ourselves to sin and death are indeed forgiven in Christ. I'm certain that the way of the kingdom is the way of healing and reconciliation. And I am certain that this is indeed the body and blood of Christ which is given for you. This leads me to my one and only certainty about your identity and mine. We are indeed brothers and sisters, beloved children of the one true God and citizens of his eternal kingdom. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.